As we've been following on breakfast, the cattle ship Gulf Livestock One capsized and sank in the East China Sea while en route from Napier to China. It was taking 5,800 cattle on a 17-day journey. And it's focused attention once again on the vexed ethics of live animal exports. Kia ora, I'm Nikki Mando, and today on The Detail, I'm looking at a practice few people condone. It's a practice many assumed had stopped until the Gulf Livestock One was hit by a typhoon earlier this month in the East China Sea. Of the 43 crew on board, including two New Zealand stock handlers, there have been just two survivors. MPI immediately put a halt on livestock exports. It's a scurrilous trade. Where there have been problems for decades. This thing ended up slow steaming in circles. A high proportion of the sheep on board uh, died. It was a diabolical mess. Even farmers have concerns. He questions why we would be sending our cows from New Zealand, where we have fairly strict animal welfare laws, to countries which don't have that same level of animal welfare law. And the health and well-being of animals are put at risk purely for profits. The reason farmers, some farmers in New Zealand, want to get their animals over there is entirely because of the money. There is no other reason. The shipment of animals to and from New Zealand is as old as human settlement here. Polynesians brought dogs, pigs and chickens with them. The early Europeans shipped in goats, sheep and cattle. And as early as the 1860s, we started shipping them out again too. It wasn't great for the animals. The journeys were long and lots of them died. But uh, more recently, I think the trade really got underway in the 80s in volume. That's the 1980s. And this is Murray Sherwin. These days, he's the Productivity Commissioner. But he spent almost a decade in the early 2000s as Director General and Chief Executive of what was then the Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry, MAF, now MPI. At that time, it was pretty much all sheep being exported, often in the Middle East, which needed large quantities of live animals to supply pilgrims at the annual Hajj. There was a ban in the 1970s for animal welfare reasons, But that was lifted in 1985, and the trade boomed. In 1986, 400,000 sheep left the country. By 1989, it was more than a million. The Australians uh, were, I think, fairly influential in in what happened here, and, and again, uh, I may not be entirely accurate here, but my understanding is that the Australians had built quite a trade in shipping um, uh, cattle from the Northern Territory into Indonesia, uh, and that worked for them because they had uh, they didn't have adequate um, uh, killing facilities in the Northern Territory. So, uh, and it's just a quick hop across uh, the water to Indonesia, so that was pretty straightforward. And then I think subsequently developed a trade with what were actually pretty low value uh, merino uh, sheep from the likes of Western Australia and uh, South Australia uh, and found a trade for that into the uh, religious slaughter market in the Middle East and began to grow that and then started looking around for other sources of livestock and came to New Zealand and were able to, to buy them here. So that trade grew out of New Zealand through the 80s and peaked, I think, somewhere around the 90s and well, was still running, obviously, through till the 2000s and the Cormo Express incident. The Cormo Express left Australia in early August 2003 with 57,000 sheep on board. The Cormo Express was a a dreadful case. The shipment left Fremantle 
uh, went up to Saudi Arabia and was denied entry on arrival. And the receiving vets in Saudi Arabia, as I understand it, had decided that there was an outbreak of, I think it's a disease called scabby mouth. There's all sorts of stories about the background that might have been behind what happened there. But whatever the story was, the Saudis refused to allow the ship to berth and to discharge its, its flock, uh, which left the uh, ship owners and the handlers of that shipment with a dreadful problem. What was it like? Well, it was very hot, as you'd expect. There were suggestions that the air conditioning wasn't coping well. They pulled into a port, I think, uh, to to uh, restock with food and had a mechanical breakdown and a fire on board. This thing ended up, I think, slow steaming in circles uh, and a high proportion uh, of the sheep on board died. It was a diabolical mess and it really inflamed, uh, understandably, the animal rights people, but, but even you know, ordinary people just saw this and thought this is not uh, acceptable. So we stopped the trade out of New Zealand. We did... And we didn't. If I was to sum up the history of the live animal export trade, it involves long periods where we all totally ignored what was going on. And then there'd be some terrible accident or some hideous footage released and there would be public protests and politicians jumping on the bandwagon. There would be temporary bans and improvements and then the trade would continue. It was the same after the Cormo Express. John Hellstrom was Chief Veterinary Officer at MAF in the 1980s. He was horrified by what he saw then, and he's angry that after all this time, we are still sending shiploads of animals out to sea. Over the years, there have been so many incidents on these ships. You've probably got about a one chance in ten of a significant event on a livestock ship. This isn't even the first ship to roll over. It's only last year a ship rolled over in the Black Sea and certainly 20,000 sheep were drowned. There's been a lot of uh, emphasis on the fact that this uh, latest terrible episode is a one-off and we shouldn't get all up in arms with one terrible thing and let's have an inquiry and sort out what went wrong and fix it and get on. Well, whether that's misunderstanding or, or someone just trying to tell a porky, I'm not sure. As far as the 2003 Cormo disaster is concerned, that wasn't even the first problem with that ship. But we'd actually had an earlier event in, in 1990 which was when we changed our rules substantially towards a lot more control and uh, much more supervision and so on, and that was also the Cormo Express. The Cormo Express was actually a converted car carrier, so these animals were down inside the holds, and when they got to the Red Sea, there was a problem. The engine failed or the air conditioning failed. They ended up with thirty or 40,000 sheep in a boat. They couldn't cool down. They couldn't get the water away. They couldn't get rid of all the faecal slurry and so on. And this was all accumulating in the lower decks, and the animals were actually drowning in effluent in the lower holds of the boat. 10,000 sheep died on that voyage. So why has this trade been allowed? Hellstrom goes back to the 1980s. I was chief veterinary officer from 1986 to 1991, and that was the period of very rapid growth that was a consequence of the, the Douglas reforms and the removal of agricultural subsidies. So it was a very tough time for sheep farmers, and... Uh, the live sheep trade offered an alternative market for some of their stock and it certainly kept the prices up a little. That must have been a really difficult trade-off for you. Yes, and initially, of course, we didn't have a lot of evidence, so we were saying we think this is going to be bad. The evidence from other countries doing it is that it's going to be bad, but there was very strong pressure uh, to uh, let industry get some income back out of the trade. 
So we started out with some relatively minor restrictions on the trade. We made some conditions about how the welfare of the animals should be managed. The concerns about the animals, it wasn't just about the boats. Even at that stage, our concern was was probably more about what happened to the animals when they arrived because this trade was, well, I probably still use the term, it's a scurrilous trade. The animals, uh, once they arrived in the Middle East, uh, treated pretty badly, uh, inhumane slaughter. A lot of it's traditionally been backyard slaughter, so people were buying these animals and putting them in the boot of their car and then driving off and cutting their throats at home. It, it all was all tied up with uh, uh, the religious calendar. And the Hajj, of course, is a, is a lunar event, so it, it moves every year. It moves a few days. And uh, when we first got involved, the Hajj was in wintertime in the Middle East, so the animals were not getting... They were getting heat stress on the way over there, but it wasn't as bad as it became later on. And uh, as the years went past, the Hajj got uh, further and further into the uh, uh, Middle Eastern summer, and then the conditions really started to deteriorate. <laughs> Boats in those days were all uh, modified, uh, repurposed boats from uh, other trades, uh, oil tankers with uh, cages stuck on top, mainly freighters. Uh, one, some of the early boats were uh, converted uh, car carriers, so they'd been designed to take lots of motor cars inside them. They had, rather than having open cages on the top, they were enclosed. The other thing was they were designed to carry very large numbers, so some of the ships carried up to 110, 120,000 sheep. And what were the conditions like? Uh, they were pretty bad. Well, they were, they were awful on some of the boats, but in general they were not good. We had such crude tools to measure welfare in those days because we didn't have observers on the boat. Basically, New Zealand's involvement was to deliver the animals to the wharves, and uh, once they were loaded on the ship, we pretty much lost all control over them because the boats were foreign-owned, foreign-crewed, and uh, following the directions of foreign owners. They didn't even have vets on then? No, no vets at all. Whatever stock managers there were on the boat were probably, uh, well, certainly not, not New Zealanders, uh, people they'd brought with them on the boats. And, of course, this was all cost-cutting. Everything was done on, on the cheap to keep the costs down as low as possible. The animals were trucked to the wharves and then loaded on the ships, and it was mainly out of Napier and Timaru, I think, were the two main ports we were operating from. Was that because they were trying to keep the export out of the public eye by putting it into smaller ports? I think even at that stage there was a uh, there, there was certainly public concern and there were protests out of sight, out of mind. I'm sure that was a factor. How did you set about getting evidence and getting this changed? The problem was mortalities. So, so we were getting messages back saying 2, 3, 4% of sheep were dying, which doesn't sound very much, but when it's 100,000 sheep, mm. that's 4,000 deaths. And they just chucked them overboard, did they? And they just chucked them overboard, yes. There, there were some car newspaper cartoons those days of a, a trail of uh, sheep floating upside down from New Zealand to Saudi Arabia with the sharks following along behind, licking their lips. And then, of course, there were losses loading because when you're putting 100,000 sheep up ramps onto ships, there's inevitably going to be accidents. And even far worse at the other end, the unloading, where the, the stock handling skills were much less than they were in New Zealand. So uh, it was not unusual to have between uh, a half and 1% of sheep killed dying during unloading. Exporting animals for slaughter overseas. In New Zealand, that dwindled and then stopped after the 2003 disaster though it continues in Australia. The video was taken during multiple three-week voyages between Australia and the Middle East and shows sheep deprived of food and water, lambs born and killed on board and animals being discarded overboard. 
On one day, hundreds died from stress. In New Zealand, we just switched from sending animals for meat to sending them for breeding, from sheep to cows, pregnant cows. Farmers from China to Mexico to Sri Lanka wanted our cows for their dairy herds. When the Gulf Livestock One sank in September, it didn't just kill 6,000 cows, but also their unborn calves. I asked John Hellstrom, the vet, why, if it's not OK to send sheep overseas for meat, why it's seen as OK to send pregnant dairy cows? I think a distinction was made in the early 2000s that sending animals to slaughter was probably no longer acceptable for a whole range of reasons. There was still a, a, a place left for animals to be exported for breeding because they were going to go to their new point of destination and live a long and happy life being a dairy cow, producing calves and milk, etc., etc. And that, that sort of illusion was maintained, that it was, it was ethically and from a welfare point of view OK to send animals for breeding. In fact, I see even in the latest Federated Farmers blurb, they're saying we're helping countries you know, produce their own food and deal with uh, climatic emergencies, etc., etc. So it's a good, humane thing to do. Over the years, New Zealand has sent cows all over the world. These days, more than 90% go to China. Wherever the animals are going overseas, pretty much, they're going into far worse welfare conditions than they would have experienced if they'd stayed in New Zealand. In China, they're mainly going into very large feedlot operations, high mortality, poor fertility. The way they treat bobby calves shouldn't be mentioned in public. In China, they don't have any uh, significant welfare protocols for uh, transport or, or slaughter of uh, cast-for-age animals. And the other big issue with factory farming, and this is a global issue, it's not a China issue, is that uh, a normal dairy cow would have a ex life expectation of six or seven lactations. In a feedlot, they're generally only three or four lactations. In other words, they have a very short life expectation, not nearly as good as it would have been in a pasture-fed environment in New Zealand. But it's not only about cows dying, it's just that's the easiest thing to measure. That's actually a lousy measure of animal welfare. Most of the suffering that animals experience is day-to-day -day way they're handled, fed, their diseases managed, their ability to behave in the ways they want to behave. Dairy cows, for example, have an incredible drive to lie down and chew their cuts. That's the way they've evolved. So they need to spend almost half of their day resting. And it's very hard to set up uh, adequate conditions for that to happen in a feedlot. They can lie down, but they're lying down on concrete or they're lying down in faecal slurry or, or whatever. The crazy thing is, with all the advances in science, genetics, the cool stuff going on in New Zealand and elsewhere in reproduction and health... Why do we even need to send live animals overseas? Isn't there a more sophisticated way to get our sought-after cow genetics into overseas herds? Absolutely there is, Hellstrom says. The technology is there to entirely stock these countries with embryos collected here and sent overseas in a liquid nitrogen canister. The problem at the other end is that they don't have the technology, the expertise or even the number of recipient animals to handle them properly. My newsroom colleague, Farah Hancock, who covers science and animal welfare, has been looking at live animal exports for a while. It's a conundrum, she says. If you're wanting to build a herd of milking cows, obviously New Zealand's got some really great milking cows, we could just send semen over, and we do. So I'm not sure about last year, but um, in one year we exported 1.5 million straws of semen, it was worth about $6.9 in the year ended June 2019. So it's 
a lot of that goes. But you've got to think you've got a big New Zealand bull and its offspring might not be suitable for a smaller local cow to carry. So what you need first, if you're sending semen and embryos, is, is animals to put those in. If you don't have those animals in the first place, then I used to anyone. And also when you're using semen, you're just getting half of new genetic material into your herd, whereas if you have a nice New Zealand you know, dairy cow plus semen from New Zealand, you're getting lots of new genetic material that's good for milking. For Farah's most recent story, she talked to a farmer who unexpectedly found himself embroiled in the whole live cattle export saga. This farmer had, for the first time, sold animals for live export. He said, oh, I have a few cows that are surplus and I normally sell them locally. But this year his stock agent suggested live export. He said he was never 100% sure about it, but he kind of went with it this time and went through the process, you know, rounding the cows up when the people came to do whatever they're doing and then sending them off. Um, There was just a handful. It was around 20 or so cows. Those disappeared, and he he doesn't know if they were on the ship that sank. He thinks they may still be in New Zealand doing that process where they go through quarantine and get you know weaned onto a different food. But he, he's just not sure. Uh, obviously, he was really absolutely shattered when he heard about the ship and really upset. The other thing about this guy is he describes himself as quite shy. It took a lot to get him to talk to me and then even to agree to use his name. He was a bit nervous. But he decided, he, after doing some research about it, he feels so strongly that he wanted to take a stand and wanted to come forward and talk about his opinion on live export and he's never, ever doing it again. What did he say about it? He questions why we would be sending our cows from New Zealand, where we have fairly strict animal welfare laws, to countries which don't have that same level of animal welfare law. So, for example, in China, when it comes to slaughter, you're not required to stun the animal first. It's encouraged, but it's not required under law. That was one thing. His other concern is, why would we be sending our cows overseas when we want to be selling our milk? Sort of, you know, as, as a... Is it short-term gain for long-term pain, were his words. But other farmers defend the practice. Here's Federated Farmers Chairman Richard McIntyre. The cattle aren't, aren't all penned up one on top of the other or anything like that. They're, they're in pens with, with adequate um, space and, and clean, dry bedding, plenty of food and water, and, and they're comfortable. On the other side, animal welfare lobby groups and vets like John Hellstrom argue the only rationale is profit. There's no doubt there is a, an economic benefit for, for some farmers to sell some stock into the system, and that's another string to their bow, and when times are tough on, on, the, on the farm, then it's, it's obviously another income stream for them, but it's, it's not a big income stream. And in spite of all the hype built around this, I see someone talking on the radio in the last couple of days, it could be a $500 million business next year, up from $65 million this year or whatever it is. I mean, that's just ridiculous. There is no way that China has the capability of taking 250,000 cattle into, uh, from New Zealand into uh, decent conditions next year. Between the two camps are both MPI and the Agriculture Minister, Damien O'Connor. We don't want any animal welfare and we don't want any you know, perverse economic outcomes, but we do need to ensure that if we put people or animals on boats, they will be safe and they will get to their destination. 
the government announced a review into live animal exports in June last year and ordered a temporary ban and another review after the Gulf Livestock 1 sinking. The 2019 review is considering various options, from strengthening existing standards to a total or conditional ban on some or all of the livestock export trade. But as Murray Sherwin, the former Director-General of MAF, knows all too well, it's way more complicated than just weighing up ethics and economics. Well, um, we're a trading nation and we rely on, on shipping our products into other countries and we rely on them receiving them and they rely on us providing them and there's a whole set of rules uh, that we're all signed up to under the WTO and elsewhere which are designed to allow that trade to flow smoothly um, and the fact that you have a different view on what constitutes uh, satisfactory animal welfare um, than the, the trading partner at the other end doesn't, uh, isn't necessarily well dealt with in those arrangements. So the trade lawyers, of which I'm not one, will tell you that uh, you need to be very careful about how you, how you structure a, a ban on a, on a trade of the sort um, to make it uh, watertight, if you like. Australia got caught out big time taking action against live exports. In June this year, it lost a nine-year court battle with the Northern Territory's Cattlemen's Association, and that could end up being very expensive. They had been putting forward a claim for some $600 million in compensation over the Gillard government's decision to ban live exports back in 2011. This is a significant ruling today in their favour. Justice Stephen Rarey's finding the decision was both invalid and reckless. But for Hellstrom, it's pretty black and white. Live animal exports have to stop. You asked the question before about the farmers have various reasons. There is one, one thing which I find very offensive in the federated farmers' argument, that if we don't send our cattle over there, someone else will. And that, that, that argument is so morally vacant. It's an absurd argument to say that because there might be a really bad outcome, it's better if our animals go to that bad outcome than someone else's. <laughs> It just makes me angry when I hear that. It's right up there with the uh, conscious pilot uh, washing our hands of this stuff. You, you can't use that as an argument to keep the trade going. That's it for today. I'm Nikki Mando. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. Thanks to Murray Sherwin, John Hellstrom and Farah Hancock. Ma te wa.